Hello and welcome to the analysis of an operation which is currently under process and which mobilizes the world of telecommunication operators. Vodafone and 3UK, subsidiary of the CK Hutchinson conglomerate, have just confirmed their discussions whose aim is to merge their UK operations. The agreement would lead to the creation of a joint venture, 5149, 51 for Vodafone, 49 for Hutchinson, whose announced objective is to reach critical mass and financial profitability. Altogether, they would generate synergies which are high enough to pay the WAC, which is about financial performance, while in the meantime being able to challenge the market leaders locally. One point of uncertainty is obviously the potential approval or not from the CMA, which is the institution in charge of competition in the UK. Now, it's not the first time that we discuss the telecommunication operators in the academy. If you remember, in April 2020, I introduced the concept of mobile virtual network operator, concept which was created by Richard Branson, Virgin Mobile UK. In February 2021, I mentioned the telecommunication towers and described the evolution of American Tower and Celnex, its competitor in Europe. In both cases, it's about the major strategic challenges for telecommunication operators, which come from the huge capital intensity of this business. You have to invest a lot in capital expenditures, you have to invest in brands, and you have to pay the licenses, the ability to operate. As a consequence, there's a couple of natural, obvious questions. The first one is, how can you saturate operating assets entirely using the capacity of your production process? An answer was the MVNO in the UK, created by Richard Branson again. The second one is how do you finance growth when growth is consuming huge financial resources? A solution might be to sell the towers, the telecommunication towers, which are regarded and considered as non-strategic assets and today evaluated at a very high price. If you try to describe the Daphne in a few dates, the first one is the creation of the company under the name of Rackle Telecom in 1984. The company became Vodafone Group in 1991. The story is going to really accelerate for Vodafone in 1999. The company merges with AirTouch. The company buys 35% of Manisman in 1999, which is going to be complemented in 2000. And the company is also going to create, together with Bell Atlantic, a real diamond, Verizon Wireless. Now, today, in 2022, Vodafone is number six worldwide, with 2021 revenues of 45 billion euros, approximately. There's one thing which characterizes the evolution of Vodafone, is permanent acquisitions and divestments. I mentioned the fact that in 99 the company acquired 35% of Manisman. The remaining 65% were acquired in 2000. The total cost is 112 
billion sterling pounds. In order to reduce the financial needs, Vodafone is going to sell Orange to France Telecom FT in 2000. And FT will take a few years to recover from this acquisition, by the way. In 2012, Vodafone buys cable and wireless worldwide. And one year later, for $130 billion, a fantastic capital gain, Vodafone is going to sell its stake of 45% in Verizon Wireless. Today, the companies in Africa, Egypt, South Africa, Ghana, Cameroon, a little bit in South America, in Chile, a little bit in Asia, of course in India, but in Japan, the operations were sold to SoftBanks, and in Europe, Hungary, Ireland, Italy, Spain, and obviously UK. Now, the consequence of all these acquisitions is intangible assets in the balance sheet, brands, goodwill. By itself, goodwill at the end of 2021 represents a little bit more than 30 billion euros, which is almost 30% of the total invested capital, total capital employed of the company. Now, the constant evolution of the period of consolidation and of activity of the company makes the analysis of revenues quite difficult. The one thing we can observe is that in 2004, the company generates about 25 to 30 billion euros of turnovers, and it's going to accelerate. And starting in 2009, the revenues are going to be in a range between 40 and 50 billion euros. Today, as I said earlier, 45 billion euros of turnover. That's about revenues. But what about commercial profitability? The company is publishing its adjusted EBITDA. Adjusted means you get rid of everything which is not recurrent. It was absolutely outstanding in 2004 with 45, 50% of EBITDA as a percentage to revenue. Then it started getting down, stabilized around 2010, 2011, then went down again to 25% of sales. And now we observe that it's gradually up, but stabilizing at around 30%. The EBIT itself is EBITDA minus depreciation and amortization. But if you observe the actual EBIT and not the current or adjusted EBIT, then EBIT is EBITDA minus depreciation and amortization, but plus minuses, exceptional events, including impairments. And the consequence of acquisitions, which prove to be poor acquisitions in terms of price paid, is impairment. In 2005, 2013 and 2018, for the last one, there were huge write-offs of goodwills in the P&L of the company. This is why the EBIT is quite chaotic in the long run. Now that was about commercial profitability, if you want to assess the financial performance of a company, you have to calculate the return on capital employed, which is return on sales, already mentioned, multiplied by the assets turnover, which is very much about the capital intensity I already mentioned. The assets turnover is sales revenues divided by capital employed. The main item in the capital employed is non-current assets, tangibles, and intangibles. These non-current assets are mostly explained by the evolution of capital expenditures. 
not only increase in property, plant and equipment, but also purchase of intangible assets. When you look at the evolution of capital expenditures as a percentage to revenue, it's quite big. It was about 20% in 2004, went down to 15, went up to 20 again. There's a peak in 2015 with about 30%, but now it's stabilized around 20%. 20% to revenues, it's a very high figure. But it's also quite interesting to observe the dynamics of this figure, comparing the investment today with the investment yesterday. The impact of the investment yesterday is depreciation and amortization today. So there is a very interesting indicator, which is intensity, investment intensity, which is capex today divided by depreciation and amortization, which is average investment, average capex yesterday. If the indicator is higher than one, it means that you are investing more today than yesterday. But if it is going down and below one, it means that you are investing less. Interestingly, it was about one, a little bit less than one in 2004. Then it reaches a level of one. It is 1 1.2 in 2015, this figure, capex divided by depreciation and amortization. But starting in 2016, it is less than one and it's dramatically down. Today, capital expenditures represent an average of 60% of depreciation on amortization. So definitely the company has decided to reduce its effort in investment and capex. The second item which you add to non-current assets when you want to calculate the capital employed is working capital requirement. But as far as telecommunication operators are concerned. It's negative or it's very close to zero. Low inventories, accounts receivable, prepaid sometimes, accounts payable. So definitely working capital requirement is not an issue. What is really an issue in the calculation of the capital intensity is capital expenditures. Now, once we have observed the evolution of the capital intensity, we can calculate the assets turnover multiplied by the return on sales we already mentioned in order to get the return on capital employed. Interestingly, in 2004, after the huge prices paid during the internet bubble for telecommunication operators, the assets turnover of Vodafone was about 0.2. Then, as a consequence of, among others, impairments, the assets turnover went up gradually, reached a high point in 2018 with 0 0.5 and is now 0 0.4, which means that when the company invests 100 euros in its business operations, the annual revenues are limited to 40 euros. This is a very low figure, which is multiplied by the commercial profitability. You remember a quite chaotic figure. Then at the end of the day, you understand that up to 2012, the return on capital is about 10-15%, which pays the whack. But starting in 2013, the return on capital for the company is in the range of 4-5-6%. After tax, it does not pay the whack. Of course, if you take the current EBIT and not the actual EBIT, which you can read in the P&L, you improve a little bit the picture because you get rid of bad news, which are supposedly non-recurrent. If you calculate the economic profit generated by the company in percentage, 
its return on capital employed after tax less the weighted average cost of capital. In order to have a kind of recurrent perspective of the company, you calculate the current Rosé, not with the actual EBIT, but with the current and adjusted EBIT. The result of the observation is quite interesting. In 2004-2005, as a consequence of huge investment, what is happening is economic profit is negative. Then it is about zero, then it turns positive and significantly positive, reaches a point of 4% from 2010 to 2012, and then is collapsing starting in 2013, will be a little bit positive because it's current and not actual EBIT in 2020 and in 2021. It's always very interesting to confront the evolution of the market to book, which is a relative value creation generated by the company, and its economic performance, which is economic profit in percentage. Market to book is enterprise value divided by capital employed. Capital employed is what was invested. Enterprise value is the value of what was invested in the business operations. And enterprise value is calculated as a sum of market cap plus net financial debt. Interestingly, up to 2007, the market to book was more than one. But starting in 2008, it is less than one and it will never reach the level of one. Today, it's about 0 0.75, 0 0.8. Now, interestingly, when the economic profit is 0%, it means that the return capital after tax matches with the cost of capital. Performance is nil. There is no value creation, no value destruction. This is why the market to book should be one when the economic profit is zero. And then you can observe the correlation between the economic profit and the market to book taking one as a benchmark for market to book, which corresponds to 0% as a benchmark for the economic profit. There is a correlation. Of course, as the current EBIT is quite chaotic, the correlation is not that obvious year after year. But in the long term, what you observe is that the company is not performing and the market to book is less than one, which is about value destruction. It's also quite interesting to make a kind of virtual calculation, what should be the market to book, assuming that there is no growth in the cash flow, in the revenue, and in the performance of the company, and compare this no growth market to book with the actual one. When you observe these two indicators, you understand that they are quite correlated one with each other, which basically means that the market does not anticipate any improvement in the financial performance of the company. As a conclusion, what do you observe? Permanent value destruction, consequence of poor financial performance, and no expected recovery on a market perspective. This suggests me a comment which I made in a Mercado Libre film dated July 2021. If you remember, Mercado Libre is a very successful company against Amazon in South America. And Mercado Libre decided not to buy customers, but to attract customers with the quality of execution and with customer satisfaction. Interestingly, the competitor of Mercado Libre took the opposite strategy and decided to buy and buy and buy again customers through acquisitions. And the winner is 
Mercado Libre, which eventually bought its competitor. So really the question is, is it more profitable to attract customers rather than buy customers? And you understand what my answer is. Now let's have a quick look at the second actor of the game, C.K. Hutchinson, 3 UK. A conglomerate based in Hong Kong, created and managed by Li Ka-shing, the very well-known person. He was the CEO and chairman of the board of the conglomerate from 1950 to 2018, which is absolutely outstanding. Currently, the revenues generated by the conglomerate are about $58 billion. Telecommunication, it's a bit more than one-fifth of the revenues, but it is almost 40% of EBITDA. So this is absolutely fundamental as a contribution. Now, if you deep dive in the annual report of the company and you look at what happens in UK, you calculate EBITDA, you subtract capital expenditures and what you have to pay each and every year for licenses, and the figure, which is a kind of free cash flow, is negative. When the free cash flow to the firm is negative, it means that the company is worth nothing, except if the market anticipates that there might be some kind of recovery in order to boost the potential recovery. Hutchinson tried to merge business operations in the UK with Telefonica UK, if you remember the former O2. But the authorities rejected the project in 2016 because of competition. Now, the institution in charge of accepting or rejecting this kind of project is taking its opinion from the Ofcom. Ofcom is a regulator of telecommunication operators in the UK. And the company published a very interesting study in December 2020, observing the impact of mergers in the telecommunication industry in Europe. And to make it simple, a merger implies less investment and stabilization of customer satisfaction, or less investment again and lower and decreasing customer satisfaction. So you understand that the objective is definitely to reduce capital expenditures sometimes even at the expense of customer satisfaction, which is completely confirmed by a very interesting book published by a professor of New York University, Thomas Philippon, The Great Reversal, published in 2019. He observed the evolution of the North American industry. Among other industries observed by the professor, telecommunication operators in North America. It's a duopoly, plus a few additional actors, it's very expensive, and the quality of service is quite poor. It reinforces the Ofcom opinion on the European market. So, of course, there will be less investment. Of course, there will be savings. The savings are estimated and announced at a level of £400 million per year, which is quite significant. Now, if you want to grasp this opportunity, you can select an acquisition, Vodafone buys 3UK, or create a joint venture. The joint venture was decided for a very simple reason, which is, it's very difficult for Vodafone to buy. The gearing of the company, the financial structure, is already quite overloaded by debt. And if you look at the evolution of the financial structure, gearing and leverage throughout the years, it's up and up and up. 
Today, the net financial debt is about 1.6 times the market capitalization of the company, and the same net financial debt represents about 3.5 years of EBITDA. So there is no possibility to finance the acquisition by debt. Of course, it could be financed by equity, an all-stock transaction, but then it would be at the expense of the dilution of Vodafone shareholders, and today's stock price of Vodafone is a little bit gloomy, so they are probably not willing to take this alternative. Conclude this vidcast. Let's go back to customer satisfaction. We understood the financial rationality, but what is the impact for the customers? Ofcom publishes each and every year a report which is about satisfaction, customer satisfaction, benchmarking all the telecommunication operators in the UK. If you look at the score of Vodafone, it's about the average. 92% of satisfaction. The best among the best is Tesco Mobile. GiveGaf also has a great score. And Vodafone is average. Now, significantly below the average is 3UK, with 86% of satisfaction. Now, interestingly, the bad pupil in the list is Virgin Mobile, which is quite strange when you remember that Richard Branson creating Virgin Mobile created a company which was absolutely fantastic in terms of customer reputation and satisfaction. A few things happened since then. Just another illustration of the reasons why the level of satisfaction is quite low. Look at the complaints received by Ofcom. Who are the highest three? Well, three. Virgin Mobile again, which is number one by far, and Vodafone. So you understand that customer satisfaction is not that great. So maybe it's going to be accepted by the institution in charge of uh, competition, CMA. Maybe they are going to generate synergies, but what are they going to do with these synergies? Are they going to return the synergies to the shareholders? You remember they want to improve the financial performance and profitability. Or are they going to use the synergies and the cash which is generated to improve the quality for the customer, the customer satisfaction? The answer is a little bit in a calculation. If you look at what happened since 2004 up to today, more than 100 billion euros of cash were returned to the shareholders. And it is significantly more than the current net earnings generated by the company, which means that when the company made a great investment and generated a capital gain, instead of investing this capital gain into the improvement of customer satisfaction, they returned the cash to the shareholders. So this figure gives you my opinion about the answer to this question, shareholder versus customers. Thank you very much.